Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you so much for drawing us together, and I pray as always I'd not get in your way. Lord, will you speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. Over the past weeks, as we've listened to the words of hope that are held out to us in the Psalms, we've looked at several that were penned by David, the second king of Israel. His Psalms were frequently birthed out of difficulties he'd experienced, many of which came through no fault of his own, as we've already seen. David knew what it was to suffer unjustly, But as we will see today, David also knew the pain of having to endure the consequences of his own sins and failures. And his response to one of those failures has left us one of the most familiar and often quoted psalms in all of Scripture. I'm sure you'll know some of its lines. This is how it came about. Though David was undoubtedly a great soldier and leader, there was a time in his life when he seemed to face some sort of depression. We're not told the exact cause of his despondency, but we are told in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, what resulted. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. David should have been off with his men, but he had remained behind in Jerusalem, where it seems he was languishing on his bed. I think that there is some truth to the old saying that the devil finds work for idle hands, because with little to distract him, David went up onto his roof one evening where he spied the naked Bathsheba bathing in her courtyard below. Despite the fact that Bathsheba was the wife of one of David's most faithful soldiers, Uriah, the king gave way to temptation and committed adultery with her. As a result of their encounter, Bathsheba became pregnant, but instead of immediately confessing his sin, David tried to hide what he had done. He ordered Uriah home from the battle under the pretense of wishing to be updated on how their campaign was going. David plied Uriah with wine on his visit, and he repeatedly tried to get him to go home to sleep with Bathsheba. But the noble Uriah would not break trust with his comrades and take comfort at home while they remained in the heat of battle. And so David was left to come up with another plan, but it needed to be carried out quickly. He sent Uriah back to the battle with a secret message for his commander Joab. The message instructed Joab to send Uriah into the fiercest part of the battle where he would be unlikely to survive. And in so doing, David became guilty of Uriah's murder. 
When news of Uriah's death reached Jerusalem, David quickly married Bathsheba. Now, his subjects probably would have seen that as a truly noble gesture. Their king taking care of his faithful servant's widow. But in reality, it was the perfect way to conceal the truth of what he had done. No one would ever know. However, the last sentence of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, reveals a sobering fact. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God knew. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're told what God did about it. The Lord sent his prophet Nathan to David, and when he came before the king, Nathan told him a story. He said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. The God who knew everything about David knew exactly what he had done. He also knew that David would immediately identify with the wrong done to the poor man and that he would demand justice. So, it was the perfect story to pierce the king's already troubled heart. And David's heart was troubled. Though he'd done everything he could to hide his sin, it had been eating away at him on the inside. He described what he'd been going through in another psalm that we'll look at in a few minutes. In Psalm 32, verses 3 to 4, he wrote, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. It wasn't just David's conscience that was giving him pain. His entire body was in anguish. He was weak and depleted because of the guilt that he felt. He was exhausted physically, emotionally and spiritually. And so when Nathan said those words to him in verse 7, 
you are the man, he had no trouble admitting his guilt. He confessed freely and begged God's forgiveness, pouring out his heart in words he later wrote in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness. Even in the womb you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Notice that David speaks of my transgressions, my sin and my iniquity. Seven times he takes all the blame and guilt upon himself, accepting complete responsibility for his deeds. Now, he could have said, oh, well, it was Bathsheba's fault for bathing in full view of the palace, so she's to blame, but he didn't. He could have said, all the other kings do as they please. Why shouldn't I be as privileged as they? But he offered no such excuse. He was brutally honest about what he had done. It's so easy to try to justify our actions, isn't it? And yet it's not the way to the freedom we long for. I want you to notice the other pronoun in these verses David said over and over again, your unfailing love, your compassion, against you have I sinned. I have done evil in your sight. David realizes who he had really sinned against. Yes, he'd sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against those he'd included in his murderous plans, and the effects would ripple through all of their lives. But It was the Lord's love, the Lord's righteousness that he had ultimately violated. And so he pleaded for God's mercy in words thousands of us have borrowed to plead for ourselves. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. David lived at a time when animals were sacrificed in the temple, but he understood that those outward rituals meant nothing if the heart was not right with God. 
These rituals aren't required today. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins fulfilled them all and has purchased forgiveness for us. However, the same kind of heart that David mentioned here is necessary. God desires a humble heart when we ask his forgiveness. He wants us to acknowledge what we've done and to have real sorrow for it, the kind of sorrow that means we won't do it again. And when we ask like that, he forgives. He lifts the heavy weight of guilt and restores a clean, right spirit within us. David wrote about the great relief that came to his soul when he confessed his sins and found God's forgiveness in the next psalm that we're going to consider. He began his Psalm 32 with the word blessed, or some translations say happy. He wrote, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. We see this in the New Testament when in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized into Christ and went on his way rejoicing because his sin had been dealt with. So it was also with the Philippian jailer, who after his baptism, along with his household, rejoiced greatly with all his house in Acts 16 verse 34. However, the biblical meaning of the word blessed is so much deeper than our word happy. It describes a deep sense of well-being, of things being as they should be. And how could they not be when God no longer counts our sins against us? But the only way to receive that wholeness is to confess our lack of it. We saw earlier in this psalm the suffering David endured when he kept silent about his sin. He said God's hand was heavy on him and his body groaned with the weight of his sin. But he reveals the remedy then in verse 5, saying, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the guilt of my sin. David was forgiven when he confessed his sin to God. He even tells us here what it means to confess, and it means to call it what it is. It's sin. It's wrong. It violates what God has said is right. Someone once said confession is agreeing with God about your sin, and I think that that's pretty good. All of us need to approach God with this kind of honesty. In fact, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1, verses 8-9, to that this is the only way that we can come to the Lord. He says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But he goes on to say, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that phrase, all unrighteousness? No matter how dirty we are, God can create in us a clean heart. No matter how heavy the load of guilt, he can lift it. In spite of all that David had done, and despite all that we do, God forgives because Christ has paid the penalty that we deserve. 
David's encouragement to us in Psalm 32 verse 6 is, Therefore let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Let us waste no opportunity to be reconciled to the Father. For those who put their trust in him will never be put to shame. He will be our hiding place, our refuge from trouble and judgment. Perhaps David was remembering here the days of Noah in which God judged the world by a great flood, but preserved Noah and his family safe in the ark. In the same way, God will deliver all those who belong to him. It's God's voice that speaks next in verse 8, as he promises those who put their faith in him, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Being set free from our sin and being reconciled to God opens a whole new way of life for us. The Lord promises to instruct us and lead us in the way that we're to go. He'll give us good counsel and he will lovingly watch over us. God wants a loving relationship with his people. He doesn't want us interacting with him like an unthinking animal that has to be controlled with the use of a bit and bridle before it'll go in the direction that it's supposed to. The Lord wants us to seek him out without being coerced through suffering and pain to turn to him. David knew the troubles that arise from choosing to live far from the Lord and ignore his commands. He knew firsthand that the sinful way is the way of sorrow, heartbreak, failure and remorse. But he had also learned that those who turn to God in faith to forgive their sin will know his unfailing love. They will joyfully sing from hearts that are cleansed and made right with God. The last psalm we'll look at today is an incredible psalm of praise that's also attributed to David, Psalm 103. Though nothing in the psalm enables us to figure out the precise occasion on which it was written, this really is a perfect song of worship for all who trust in him, and it reveals much about the loving kindness of the Lord. Praise the Lord my soul, in all my innermost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. David realized that of all the countless blessings he had received from the Lord, the most important was that God was willing to forgive all of his sins. Those who trust in the Lord have been healed of their sickness of the soul 
and have experienced redemption from many dangers, both seen and unseen. There is such a contrast between a life in the pit and a life crowned with love and compassion. And David discloses that those who were once slaves now stand as princes in God's sight because of the Lord's mercy. David had known the emptiness of being controlled by his own desires and had learned that it is in following God and doing his will that we are truly satisfied. David speaks of the power of the eagle here as a way to describe the strength that God gives to us to navigate whatever storms may blow against us. It's an ongoing strength that enables us to rise above the things that oppose us. He then does something that is important for all of us to learn from. David looks back on God's faithfulness in the past as revealed in the lives of his people Israel. He says in verse 6, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. In the days of Moses, the whole nation had been in bondage in Egypt. They'd cried out to the Lord and he heard them. David says that the Lord brought justice for those who were oppressed. But more than that, he worked righteousness for them as well. In other words, God restored his people's relationship with him by dealing with their sin. He covered them with the blood of the perfect Passover lamb so that when his judgment fell on Egypt, those marked by the blood of the sacrifice would be passed over. This was a picture of what Jesus Christ would come to do. We were oppressed by the devil and were in bondage to sin, but God heard our cry. Christ, our perfect Passover lamb, died in our place And now, covered by his blood, we've been set free from our bondage. God's justice has been wrought for the oppressed. And just as the Lord made his deeds known to Moses and Israel in the past, he has made his deeds known to us as well. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, And in his mercy, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He does not hold a grudge. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. David had no way to measure how high the heavens are above the earth, and so this was his way of saying that no matter how far a person could go, they would never be able to outdistance God's love. In a masterful use of language here, David revealed that God removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. The phrase, as far as the east is from the west, is meant to communicate infinite distance and the idea that when God forgives, he really forgives. 
our sins have been removed from us as far as is possible to even imagine. They will never come back to haunt us. Paul states in Romans 8 verse 1 that because of Christ's death, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning that those who are in Christ are fully justified in God's eyes. How far has the Lord taken our sins from us? As far as the east is from the west. And it's all because of God's great compassion. Verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The scriptures reveal that those who trust in Jesus Christ are called the children of God, and like any good father, the Lord has compassion on those who are his. Now, I know some listening today have not had that experience from their earthly fathers, and you may find it hard to identify with this point, but God knows our wounds, for he knows how we are formed and what we have endured. He understands the difficulties of our lives, our doubts, our fears and anxieties. He knows the brevity of our existence. But his love for us is everlasting, and his promises to us even extend to our children, providing we keep his covenant and obey his will. God is indeed king over all, and it is right that we give him the honor he's due. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you, his servants, who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. God is the creator of all things, and he actively rules over everything. This part of the psalm is really an encouragement for every creature to adore and worship God, and none are left out. The mighty angels of heaven, all his works, wherever they may be, let them all bless our sovereign Lord. Let all praise his holy name. And then David concludes with the phrase, praise the Lord my soul. You see, even he is not left out of this command. We are to remember to praise the Lord with every part of our being. We are to give wholehearted thanks for his love, goodness, compassion, forgiveness and salvation. We're to shake off apathy, absent-mindedness, and any negativity that may have crept into our lives. And we're to choose to remember all that God has done for us. May we never ignore or cease to care about his loving kindness and tender mercy. But remember that the scripture reveals in Psalm 63 verses 3 to 4, that God's steadfast love 
is better than life and that our lips are to praise him. We are to bless God as long as we live. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.